day The radio and the telephone And the movies that we know May just be passing fancies And in time may go But oh my dear Our love is here to stay Together we're going a long, long way In time the Rockies may crumble, Gibraltar may tumble They're only made of clay, but our love is here to stay Telephone and the movies that we know may just be passing fancies and in time may go. But oh, my dear, love is here to stay. Together we're going a long, long way. In time the Rockies may crumble and Gibraltar it may tumble They're only made of clay But our love, our love is here to stay Understanding, making connections. This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at WVEW.org. Um, and you can also um, catch us on Facebook and on um, iTunes Radio. Um, those will be available um, after the show. And we are here deepening understanding and making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon, we are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook and Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. And today, um, I have there's myself, Nina Kunimoto, a local educator, and... Asis Castellanos. And what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to talk about U.S. military bases around the world in the service of a barbaric perpetual war. Okay, great. And um, we interviewed uh, Professor David Vine. Um, he's an associate professor of anthropology at the American University in Washington, D.C. Um, so we'll hear a little bit from him, and um, Assis and I will sort of uh, have our own input into the whole issue. Yeah, uh, David Vine uh, is author of uh, Base Nation, how U.S. military bases abroad harm American and the world. 
and uh, Island of Shame, the secret history of the U.S. military base on Diego Garcia. Great. So um, we're going to kick off the show with um, a song by a punk band called Anti-Flag, and their song is called Africom. And Anti-Flag is a politically charged punk rock band from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, fronted by guitarist and vocalist Justin Sane. And you will hear him consistently say, say no to AFRICOM. Welcome back. Uh, you are listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM Barbaro Community Radio Station. And that was, uh, the song was African by Anti-Flag, uh, a politically charged punk rock band from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yep. And, um, and our guest, David Vine, who is um, a professor in Washington, D.C., um, a professor of anthropology, he'll be talking a little bit about AFRICOM. Um, so we're going to uh, play the interview, or part of the interview, and then um, Asis and I will sort of um, have a conversation about, about our thoughts on um, what David is saying. So here we go. All right, a little bit of technical difficulties. Hang on just one second. All right, pardon, uh, pardon our technical difficulties. So, um, bef while I get the interview started, um, Assis, why don't you tell us, give us a little bit of context in terms of um, the U.S. military bases and neocolonialism. Yes, uh, I think that it's uh, very important to connect uh, U.S. military bases to the concept of neocolonialism. Uh, so I, I want to read uh, a short uh, definition about neocolonialism. Uh, it is the stage of development of capitalism and imperialism in which colonies are exploited by making them economically dependent on the imperialist power. Uh, and basically, we can see uh, through this definition three a pattern. One is uh, the use of a military force to impose a colonial government. Uh, two, uh, the use of military force to exclude other imperial powers. 
and three, uh, to secure the condition of domination. Okay. Yeah, so when I think about uh, the, f the first uh, uh, example of to, put to impose a colonial government, uh, I think about the idea of uh, colonies, uh, for example, in, uh, around the world, and uh, this idea of the de facto colony, for example, uh, the concept of banana republic is very tied to, to this idea of colonies. Uh, the Banana Republic uh, concept is very interesting because it was coined by uh, a U.S. story writer called uh, named o, o. Henry. His real name was William Sidney Porter. Uh, and he used this concept of Banana Republic to describe uh, countries like Honduras and other countries that uh, were under co economic exploitation. I would say that countries that are still under economic exploitation. And Something interesting that uh, David Vines says ab about this concept of banana republic, he said that it's important to, to keep in mind that uh, this definition is referring to uh, basically a weak, marginally independent countries facing overwhelming foreign economic and political domination based around uh, a monocrop economy. Uh, so uh, David Vines, tell us that it's important to, uh, when we think about the idea of de facto colony, to think about uh, how these countries are uh, exploited uh, economically by uh, uh, imperialist countries. Okay, well, let's see if, um, if David Vine is with us. And You're an anthropologist, and I'm just kind of curious for you, like, you know, when I think of anthropology, like, I think of going now cultures and, and looking at societies, but your focus is U.S. military bases. How does that connect for you? Like, how, how did you um, become interested in that type of research? It's a great question, and it does confuse people sometimes because my work ends up looking as much like history and political science as what sometimes people think of anthropology. But in a certain way, it, it, it makes sense. Uh, well, I, I think it makes sense entirely because my vision of anthropology is that this combines the best of all the social sciences, history, political science, mm -hmm. economics, uh, sociology, et cetera. But um, my, my initial interest in bases came from one military base in particular uh, that very few people know about in the United States or anywhere in the world, and a, a base that is responsible for exiling an entire group of people. Uh, the people are called the Chagosian people, and... Uh, they once lived on an island called Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean and the surrounding Chagas Archipelago. And in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the U.S. government, uh, with the help of the British government, forcibly removed the entire Chagosian population and uh, deported them about 1,200 miles away to the western Indian Ocean uh, where they almost literally dumped them on the docks. They left them uh, on the docks uh, in Mauritius Seychelles, where they received no resettlement assistance and were left and uh, unsurprisingly found themselves living in, in deep poverty uh -huh. very quickly. And, and now for almost 50 years, they've been struggling to get back home. So when I was introduced to this, Story and the, the lives of the Chagosians that I began to think about this huge network of U.S. military bases that the United States has been maintaining outside the United States since World War II, and most importantly, thinking about the effects of these bases. And, and that's, uh, I guess, my interest in bases is, is about the impact that they have on people, on right. people living outside the United States, on people in the United States. Um, that, that's sort of where my interest grows from. So in one of your articles, and, and I think it was The Nation, I read a couple of your pieces, um, you said that most Americans are unaware of the extent of U.S. bases around the world today. And so that actually kind of connects to another part of the question of, like, you just said that bases impact people outside, which I can clearly see, but I'm curious as to how it impacts the people inside the U.S., and then, um, and could you just tell us how widespread the U.S. bases are around the world, and 
where are they particularly concentrated? And if you could talk to us about the historical context of these foreign bases. Sure. Uh, some people, when they think of U.S. bases outside the United States, probably the first base that comes to mind is Guantanamo, the most well-known right. U.S. base uh, in another country. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people think that was the first U.S. base abroad. Uh, it was one of the first, um, mm-hmm. but it's... It, First of all, important to point out that, that of course, the original U.S. bases abroad were here in North America. These were bases on Native American people's lands um, that enabled the expansion of the United States across North America from the original 13 states uh, westward. Uh, right. U.S. Army force that enabled uh, this expansion and the displacement of Native peoples and the death and, and destruction, of course, that went along with it. Right. Uh, but the, the current collection of, of U.S. bases uh, outside North America mm-hmm. is one that's, that's quite little known. Again, some might know about a few bases in Germany or Japan and Guantanamo Bay. The United States currently maintains somewhere around 800 bases outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and this is a collection of foreign bases that's larger than any other nation or people or empire in world history has ever ever maintained. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a truly massive collection of bases, most of which were were built or occupied during World War II and in the early days of the Cold War. So most mm-hmm. of these bases uh, followed the establishment of, for example, the base at uh, Guantanamo Bay, which was mm-hmm. established right around the, the Spanish-American War of 1898. Mm-hmm. Um, Along with that came bases in Guam and the Philippines, Puerto Rico. Um, but it was during World War II in the early days of the Cold War that the United States built this massive global collection of bases with huge concentrations, especially in Western Europe, of course, mm-hmm. as part of the confrontation of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and in East Asia, um, mm-hmm. especially in Japan, yeah. in uh, South Korea after the Korean War, and um, in other other parts of East Asia, um, that's the the general uh, context that we're facing now. Mm-hmm. It, the reason I say about 800 bases, and I should point out, it's about 800 bases in 80 countries worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the reason it's hard to be precise is because, for one, it's hard to define a base. People debate about what what constitutes a base, but um, also because there's so little transparency. Mm-hmm. in this system of bases, and mm-hmm. that's the fundamental problem that, that the Pentagon puts together a list on a more or less yearly basis, but uh, the list uh, contains many inaccuracies and, and obvious omissions. Right. Um, so all the bases currently in, in Afghanistan or in Iraq and Syria, bases in all three countries mm-hmm. are missing. So it's, it's very difficult to get a handle on the whole picture, but um, I put together a spreadsheet over time, and yeah. about 800 is, is a good estimate. Um, uh, the other part of your question um, about impact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bases abroad have, uh, unfortunately, inflicted a uh, number of harms on local people living around them. Uh, environmental impacts are the most obvious. Bases, yeah. no matter where they are, are harmful to the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and has, there's a track record of their damaging local local communities, local environments. Um, there are also crimes that are sadly committed by U.S. military personnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okinawa, Japan is yep. a prominent example where there's been horrific uh, rapes and murders um, on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other forms of, of damage to <clears throat> local political problems. Uh, U.S. bases are despite claims that U.S. bases spread democracy, and that's long been one of the justifications for Mm -hmm. having U.S. bases abroad. Uh, There are U.S. bases in around 33 countries that are less than democratic, so countries Mm -hmm. that are ruled by outright dictatorial regimes or authoritarian regimes or or countries that that, that, do not enjoy uh, full democratic rule or anything close to it. So in, in those cases, we have U.S. bases supporting and, and fundamentally popping up um, mm-hmm. undemocratic regimes and, and often blocking the threat of democracy. Mm-hmm. When it comes to how U.S. bases harm 
people in the United States, there are, again, a range of ways. Uh, the, the first is that you know, these bases, again, the, the other major claim is that these bases are, are necessary to protect the United States, that, that they're necessary to ensure U.S. national security and global security. And that's been a claim that's been made continually since World War II. Mm-hmm. But rarely has anyone bothered to provide any evidence that they're, in fact, doing that. Uh, we could have a debate about about during the Cold War whether um, these bases were necessary. Um, but the Cold War ended uh, more than a quarter century ago, and this collection of bases was designed to fight that war, uh, to, designed for that struggle with another global superpower. And in this era without another global superpower of the uh, strength and military might that the Soviet Union had, uh, we fundamentally have an outdated military strategy um, that is wasting literally tens of billions of dollars a year um, and distracting the U.S. military for that matter. Uh, it's also, in, in many cases, rather than making the world a more peaceful place, it's ramping up military tensions. Uh, North Korea would be a prominent example of this. Um, the ways that, that uh, U.S. bases in East Asia are also inflaming tensions with China mm-hmm. uh, is a horrifically uh, frightening uh, way in which you know, bases may be making it more likely that the United States would at some point engage in a, what would only be a catastrophic war with, with China. Um, but if we go back to the money, uh, by my conservative estimate, the United States is spending around $150 billion a year $150 billion with a B, billion dollars a year maintaining bases and troops mm-hmm. uh, abroad. And it's right. outside the 50 states in D.C. And we don't really think what, you know, small proportion of that $150 billion a year could do uh, to improve the, the lives and security of people in the United States, the education, the availability of affordable housing. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, improve the environment, um, our infrastructure that's crumbling in so many ways. Uh, and quite simply, this is a uh, really tragic, and, and I think we should be outraged by the, by the massive diversion of national wealth that's going to these bases that are quite simply unnecessary. And in many cases, not only uh, unnecessary, they're, they're actually making the world a, a more dangerous and unstable place. During the during the 19s, uh, 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 the U.S. changed uh, its discourse about its specific role as defender of freedom and democracy. And how uh, did this particular change uh, or shift change U.S. military presence globally? Uh, could you talk to us about the, particularly about Lily Pad? basis on the new way of war? Sure. Uh, again, yeah, you're pointing to the, the changes that took place after the end of the, the Cold War, when there no longer was uh, a Soviet Union that could provide a justification for maintaining this huge network of bases and military infrastructure around the world. Uh, there was a, a contraction of the, the collection of, of bases abroad did shrink by about 60% in the first few years after uh, the end of the Cold War. But by the mid uh, to late 1990s, um, that contraction ended, and uh, basically the, the status quo remained in place. So a, a huge network of hundreds of bases remained remained in place, and, and that, that collection has actually expanded. In, in recent years, especially with uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, hundreds of new bases were built um, in both countries. Many of them closed after the U.S. withdrew most of its troops from those, com- those countries. But in recent years, uh, new bases and troops have, have returned to Iraq. And bases and, uh, and troops, of course, have, have dispersed throughout the Persian Gulf and greater Middle East. Um, on, on very large bases uh, that that um, has have seen again billions of dollars in investment in places like Bahrain, Qatar, uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Jordan, elsewhere. Uh, but 
you mentioned the, the lily pad bases, which is another one of the main developments we've seen since the 1990s, and a new way of arranging U.S. military infrastructure and forces around the world. And that is that, that increasingly in places where there was no previous U.S. military presence, especially in, in parts of Africa, um, in Eastern and Central Europe, and parts of Asia, uh, the United States has been building what, what are often called lily pad bases, or more technically cooperative security locations. Um, these, rather than the, the massive bases you see in the Middle East, for example, in Germany, Japan, South Korea, sometimes they can have tens of thousands of troops, often family members, movie theaters, yoga studios, schools, housing, hospitals, you know, everything you see in a, a, a U.S. city. Okay. Um, lily pad bases are at the other end of the spectrum, and typically they have a few hundred troops, no family members, uh, some amenities, but, but very simple. And they're a little more quietly interject U.S. military power in, into, again, parts of the world where there, there hasn't been much, if any, U.S. military presence. Uh, Africa has been the place where this has been the most prominent uh, phenomenon. Mm. There was, uh, the United States created a, a new Africa command right. uh, toward the end of the Bush administration uh, to organize U.S. military forces in Africa. And it was very impressive. U.S. I'm sorry, uh, African civil society organizations and governments refused to allow the Africa command to, to put its headquarters in Africa. So the headquarters of the Africa command is actually in Germany, of all places. Mm-hmm. Um, but quietly, at the same time, and, and even more since then, uh, the United States has been building these uh, lily pad bases. Uh, often they are located within a host nation base so that they are hidden effectively from the public, from journalists, from others, um, or they're, they're located in, in remote locations. And frequently the, the line is that, you know, these are not U.S. bases, they're, they're not U.S. facilities, maybe they're, they're host nation and, and facilities in the United States, if there are any forces there, they're just guests involved in training missions. But in a variety of ways, the United States has been uh, finding strategies, including these bases, um, but also uh, referred to this new way of war. Really tied bases are part of a larger strategy uh, to more surreptitiously, quietly uh, interject U.S. military power around the world. Mm-hmm. Training would be another example of a uh, part of this new way of war. Um, the use of, of, of foreign militaries as uh, sort of proxy armies, um, arms sales are another important part of this uh, new way of war. Uh, of course, another very prominent uh, dimension where we see drone bases, uh, again, especially in Africa, but other parts of the world, being used to uh, for surveillance purposes and, and of course, uh, for targeting, for targeted killing. All these bases exist, right? And so I'm curious, in, in your understanding, what is the purpose of having so many bases around the world, and, and particularly these lily pads in Africa? And what, if any, connection does it have to trade, resource extraction? Great and important question. So in, in, in my mind, there, in large part, there is no good purpose, of course. Um, and and, and there, there isn't those who are supportive of this strategy. There isn't always necessarily a, a clear rationale or logic behind uh, these bases. In, in many cases, uh, history has shown and, and the, the record has shown that once a base is established, for example, during World War II or in the early days of the Cold War, they're often very hard to, to close down, mm-hmm. even if uh, there is little uh, military rationale or reason behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, um, it is clear that, that U.S. bases abroad have become a major source of, of U.S. power in the post-World War II era. Uh, many uh, refer to uh, the United States, of course, as an empire, an imperial power. It has been since the founding of the country, the expansion of the United States across North America is just one part of that imperial expansion. Right. 
in the post-World War II era, um, many talk about bases as being a fundamental and uh, distinguishing part of U.S. imperial power because these bases, uh, while, while often um, being, as I alluded to before, being quite dangerous, um, they have allowed the United States to exert influence and control over foreign countries um, in, a, in a variety of ways, and not just military control, but the, the threat of, of force is, is an important dimension. But these bases also play important economic and political roles in uh, part of uh, strategies to uh, pursue um, often corporate-led economic and political interests that, that U.S. government officials uh, pursue, but bases play an important part in this uh, uh, global strategy. And I think Africa is, again, sadly a, a helpful illustration, although I think a very, a very damaging and, and sad illustration, where I think it's quite clear that there's been a growing competition in Africa for geopolitical, geoeconomic control between the United States and, and China, in particular, mm -hmm. to a lesser extent, uh, the European Union. Right. You can see China pursuing this competition uh, with uh, strategic economic investments, for the most part, building infrastructure, um, extracting resources, um, often uh, building soccer stadiums as a way to curry favor with local governments. Mm -hmm. By contrast, the, the United States government has been pursuing this competition with this uh, military power um, by building these lily pad bases for the most part, small bases, um, and then by uh, intervening, um, introducing U.S. military forces uh, around Africa um, mm -hmm. to uh, maintain power and then build power and control over local governments is an essential strategy for um, this growing economic market that is Africa and a market for and source of uh, natural resources that are, are critical to the, the way the global economy works. So, so we see bases as a, a fundamental and critical part of U.S. strategy for dominating the, the global economy. Uh, unfortunately, well, in many ways, this is unfortunate, but I don't think it's a particularly effective strategy. Um, in many ways, China, of course, is, is, uh, its influence in Africa is, has grown quite dramatically, where, whereas the record for the U.S.-Africa command and these early pad bases and other forms of U.S. military power in the region is that they've largely destabilized uh, parts of Africa, far from mm -hmm. uh, bringing peace and security. Uh, we see uh, global, we see conflict in, in Africa uh, yeah. where U.S. military has not played a productive role and has only made things worse time and again. And that was an interview with David Vine. Um, professor of Anthropology at um, Washington, uh, I'm sorry, American University in Washington, D.C., and the author of Base Nation. And t our topic today in, at Indigo Radio is um, U.S. military bases around the world and what impact they have and, and what's the purpose of having these bases around the world. Um, before Assis and I sort of have a conversation about what we heard, um, we're going to play a little bit of Amiri Baraka's poem, Somebody Blew Up America. Somebody Blew Up America. All thinking people oppose terrorism both domestic and international. But one should not be used to cover the other. Somebody blew up America. They say it's some terrorist, some barbaric Arab in Afghanistan. It wasn't our American terrorists, it wasn't the Klan or the skinheads 
or the them that blows up nigger churches or reincarnates us on death row. It wasn't Trent Lott or David Duke or Giuliani or Shunla Helms retiring. It wasn't the gonorrhea in costume, the white sheet diseases that have murdered black people, terrorized reason and sanity, most of humanity as they pleases. They say, who say, who do the saying? Who is them paying? Who tell the lies, who in disguise? Who had the slaves, who got the bucks out the bucks? Who got fat from plantations, who genocided Indians, tried to waste the black nation? Who live on Wall Street, the first plantation? Who cut your nuts off? Who rape your mom? Who lynch your pa? Who got the tar? Who got the feathers? Who had the match? Who set the fires? Who killed and hired? Who say they God still be the devil? Who the biggest only? Who the most goodest? Who do Jesus resemble? Who created everything? Who the smartest? Who the greatest? Who the richest? Who say you ugly and they the good lookingest? Who define art? Who define science? Who made the bombs? Who made the guns? Who bought the slaves? Who sold them? Who call you them names? Who say Dama wasn't insane? Who, 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 who? Who stole Puerto Rico? Who stole the Indies, the Philippines, Manhattan, Australia, and the Hebrides? Who forced opium on the Chinese? Who owned them buildings? Who got the money? Who think you funny? Who lock you up? Who owned the papers? Who owned the slave ship? Who run the army? Who was the fake president? Who the ruler? Who the banker? Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. Welcome back to Indigo Radio, um, 107.7 LP, WVEW, LP, Rattleboro, your community radio station. Um, and our topic today is U.S. military bases um, around the world. And um, Assis and I, Nina, interviewed um, David Vine, the author of Base Nations. So, um, Assis, um, what, what did you think of what David was saying um, about bases, about the purpose of bases? Um, what are some of your thoughts around that? Yes. Um, I think that um, when I heard David Bain, uh, Bain I connect. Uh, he talks about the role of the U.S. Uh, after World War II. Mm-hmm. And that is pretty much connected with uh, this idea of neocolonialism. Right. And uh, and I see very clear connections uh, after after World War II uh, of the U.S. government uh, using uh, U.S. military or armed forces uh, to secure uh, the condition of domination mm-hmm. because after World War II there w- was a kind of uh, resetting uh, the the the, po- the global power right. and in in from 1945 to the current time uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, has played a key role uh, in this idea of uh, exploitation and uh, mm-hmm. securing source resources in other countries. Right. Uh, so I see very clear connection between this idea of neocolonialism. I also want I want to. Uh, share a little bit of background about this definition of neocolonialism. Yeah. Uh, uh, in 1959, uh, 
this concept of new colonialism was used in reference to to French policy in Algeria, and and then in the in 1961, uh, the term became uh, more widely used uh, in relation to Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, the Pacific, and and U.S. policy in the Caribbean and Latin America. Uh, then uh, this in 1965 uh, was published a very important book by uh, uh, Krumah. Krumah was a national uh, liberation leader from Ghana, mm -hmm. and the book, the, the book was called Neo-Colonialism, the Last Stage of Imperialism. Uh, this book is important for two things. One is that uh, uh, it's known as the first extended analysis of, of this concept of neocolonialism, uh, and also Krumah describes the new imperialist strategy in, in this new era after the World War II. Yeah, and, and World War II definitely seems to be like this turning point um, for the U.S. Not that the U.S. hadn't used the military prior to World War II, because it did um, throughout the Americas and, and even in China. And, and actually, if Michael Parenti um, has a list in his book, um, Against Empire, um, a brilliant expose of the brutal realities of U.S. global domination um, on page 38. Uh, the list um, prior to World War II of, of all the interventions around the world, including Africa. Um, but something I want to point out it also and, and to connect with what you're saying about neocolonialism and, you know, tying it back to uh, productivity, production, right? How people produce things to um, make what we subsist on. Um, and the author, Samir Amin, who's um, a political economist, um, he, his argument is that U.S. does not have, currently does not have a decisive economic advantage. Um, and the U.S. really... Um, in its, in its own country does not have an efficient production system. So it's really a, a, a parasitic economy in that the rest of the world produces while we consume. Um, and this is evidenced in the trade deficit, which in 1989 started at $100 billion, went up to $500 billion in 2002, and $665 billion in 2017. Um, and really... In turn, the U.S.'s only comparative advantage is in the armaments sector, right, as well as offering military services. Um, and that really ties into AFRICOM, where um, Gaddafi and, and – um, was was sort of resisting that, and in every African nation refused. And and David Vine was talking about that 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 the first um, headquarters for Africom was in Germany because no African nation would would have them. But now that Gaddafi and Libya has been decimated by the United States and NATO, um, that that resistance is gone, and and we're there offering up our services through these lily pads that that you were talking about. Um, but the arms sales, right, um, soared. So Time magazine, right, in 2014 said that 50% of global weaponry was from the United States. In 2016, these arms sales surged um, to 60% to, to of global weapon sales by the U.S. Um, and that's $375 billion in profits. And, and the other thing... Um, David Vine was saying in terms of um, you know how much we spend on these bases, um, 150 billion dollars a year. Michael Parenti in his book was also saying that we, the, the taxpayers, pay for this. Right, the military comes from our taxes, but the profits that are extracted from the use of these militaries, we don't get that. It's it's corporations or. Um, it's others, a the private elite. private uh, appropriation of the profit. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but you know, Honduras. So, tell tell me a little bit about um, Southcom and the purpose of Southcom um, in relation to profit making um, and and global domination. Yeah, uh, Southcom is in charge of. Uh, 
the military U.S. military strategy in Latin America, and uh, they are moving uh, from the Caribbean through the whole coast of Latin America, and in the last two decades, uh, when with with the rising of uh, left new left governments, in particular in South America, uh, uh, there was a kind of turning point. Uh, for example, very key uh, uh, moment was when uh, uh, Korea in Ecuador mm -hmm. uh, denied to sign uh, the con uh, a kind of uh, agreement between U.S. government and Ecuador to continue having a U.S. military base in Ecuador. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, fa it's famous. It's, no, it's very famous uh, when Korea uh, said that he will sign. A new agreement with the U.S. government. If the U.S. government allows uh, Ecuador to have a U.S. Uh, uh, Ecuador military base in Miami, I think, or Florida, or something like right. that, he said. Uh, so that was a turning point. Uh, and military bases such as uh, Sotocano, or popular known in Honduras as Parmerola, uh, is is became even key for South South Korea because. Uh, Sotocano is in the middle of Latin America. Mm -hmm. And with this new strategy of, uh, and justification of war in drugs, uh, Honduras uh, is now uh, a place that uh, almost 80% of the drug pass uh, through uh, Honduras territory. Mm -hmm. So uh, Sotocano now, I would say, that play a geopolitical and geoeconomical mm -hmm. uh, role in, in for U.S. Mid, uh, uh, interests in, in Latin America. And it's very clear because uh, in the last uh, decade, uh, U.S. government has been uh, uh, spending a lot of money uh, in Soto Cano. Right. And so to me, it's very clear the connection between uh, the role of uh, U.S. military bases to secure uh, the condition of domination and also the condition of control of politics and, and resources. Right. And, I mean, taking a little bit from uh, not last week's show, but the week before about Rikers Island, of how the prison system, like every little aspect, right? Um, David Vine was talking about military bases being basically a, a, a world of its own, right? I know, the yoga studios and, you know, McDonald's and all these things for the personnel and their family. Um, like the profits being extracted from that as well, that it's just a whole whole machine um, of, of profit making. But but yeah, and, and the purpose in, in a larger context, you're right about um, dominating, especially it's like Latin America, but also in Af Africa, because right now China is building the one road, one belt, which um, explains why the, the military presence in East Asia is so strong um, and in Africa because China is basically if if an African country um, if does not want to sort of bow down to the IMF's um, structural readjustment programs they could just turn to China um, so it's it's really uh, trying to gain that dominance in the Eurasian continent um, economically. Yes, and, uh, and also it's clear. Uh, that, for example, in uh, uh, U.S. taking over Africa uh, is a clear example of uh, uh, how this idea of neocolonialism is playing is playing there, because uh, for in one hand, is, uh, uh, they are taking over in order to exclude other imperial powers that can also there is a, also a, uh, a battle between uh, control and resources in, in, in Africa. Mm -hmm. So I see clearly that, that connection uh, yeah. in particular in that region. Okay, well, um, we don't have a great deal of time left, so um, we're gonna f uh, play the last portion of our interview with um, David Vine. And um, we, we focus, um, on resistance against military bases. So. Particular uh, concept of, of blowback. Concept of, of blowback. Uh, you explained that that was a CIA term popularized by 
of former CIA analyst uh, Chalmers Johnson as a way to frame the September 11 attacks. But at the same time, you used to uh, to talk about the kind of impacts or blue war that are emerging in the current time. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about uh, these impacts uh, uh, because of the presence and intervention in, in foreign countries? Sure, yeah. Chalmers Johnson is one of the leading uh, scholars and, and analysts of, of U.S. spaces abroad and one of the people who brought it to the attention of, of people like me and people uh, around the country and the world. Uh, indeed, he pointed to this, this concept of blowback, um, the CIA term, referring to the un unintended consequences of, of covert U.S. action. And the best example that, that Johnson referred to and, and that, that relates to <clears throat> U.S. bases is uh, the, the attacks of, of September 11, 2001, of al-Qaeda and, and Osama bin Laden. Uh, if we look at the professed uh, justification, motivation um, for these attacks, uh, bin Laden pointed to a number of things, but, but especially to the presence of U.S. bases and troops in the Muslim homelands in, in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. um, so bases in, in, in that case and, and in others that we can point to uh, have frequently, rather than stabilizing regions, they've, they've created um, more problems than they've solved. Uh, in, in the case of, of, of al-Qaeda and, and other parts of, of the Middle East, is a demonstrated correlation between the presence of U.S. bases and troops and, and for example, al-Qaeda recruitment. So the presence of bases have actually um, created uh, more in the United States and, and, and fueled uh, the recruiting of, of forces that would seek to do harm to, to U.S. Americans and, and to the United States. Um, and and in, in other cases, we can see ways in which uh, bases have, have created unintended consequences um, that have then fundamentally undermined U.S. national security and global security rather than, than protecting national security. There's been some strong resistance, and I've um, studied, I've been studying the resistance in Okinawa um, and comparing it to the resistance in um, Vieques and Puerto Rico, but can you talk about um, some strong resistance movements against U.S. military bases that you're seeing around the world? Well, those are, are definitely two of the, the most dramatic and, and, in my mind, inspiring mm -hmm. examples. Uh, the people of Vietnam, supported by other um, Puerto Ricans and, and, and people in the Puerto Rican diaspora and allies mm -hmm. in the rest of the United States, of course, uh, were able to successfully forced the Navy to, to leave Vieques, where they, the Navy had been bombing Vieques as a bombing range for decades. Right. Um, and uh, through a, decades of resistance, uh, the people were ultimately successful in, in getting the Navy to leave. Um, in Okinawa, people have been struggling uh, with the presence of U.S. bases or uh, the vast majority of bases in, in Japan are, are located in this one part of Japan, Okinawa, that makes up 1% of, of all of Japan's landmass. So yeah. the people of Okinawa suffered U.S. occupation uh, since the end of World War II, and many of them have been demanding that the United States leave for, for decades, um, especially in the, in the wake of, as I mentioned before, uh, her, really horrific crimes that have yeah. taken place on a fairly regular basis. Um, yeah. So the people of Okinawa, you know, they've been protesting, and there are actually multiple protest movements there. And in, in some cases, they are protesting literally on, an, on a daily basis, um, yeah. for, for example, to, to prevent the construction of a new base mm -hmm. in a place called Hinoko, yeah. uh, where both the U.S. and Japanese governments are trying to build a new marine base. Mm -hmm. um, but there are movements pretty much anywhere there's a U.S. base abroad, mm -hmm. there is a movement. They vary in size, of course, but in Germany, Italy, um, there, in Italy, for example, there was a very large movement in a place called Vicenza uh, mm -hmm. to block the construction of a, uh, a new army base. It ultimately was 
not successful in, in blocking uh, the construction of the base, but it did save about half the land that, that the Army originally wanted to occupy. Um, so often uh, movement uh, has um, the outcomes of them are not always clear. Even uh, when base base, anti-base movements seemingly fail, quote-unquote, um, it's not always clear that, that the failure is complete. Right. Um, there's another movement in Jeju, South Korea, I would point to, mm. um, where the South Korean government is building a, a Navy base that the U.S. Navy was going to have access to and has access to now, mm -hmm. that generated a, a, really an, an international movement. Um, and the people of Diego Garcia, where, where I started, they are actually not calling for the closure or removal of the base on Diego Garcia. In that case, it's a, it's a, a base-related movement where they have the right to go back to their homes, mm. uh, which seems like a pretty simple request. Right. To go back to, uh, to, to, to Diego Garcia and their other islands. Um, in that case, some, some of them would like to, to actually work on the base. They're living in profound poverty. Uh, the right. chance to work on the base looks like a pretty good opportunity. Um, right. So uh, those are just a few of the examples, but again, they're Welcome back to um, WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You're listening to Indigo Radio. And um, you just heard uh, David Vine, um, professor at American University in Washington, D.C., and author of Base Nation. And um, we're here, Assis and Nina, today. Um, and uh, unfortunately... Uh, we don't have enough time, an hour, to talk about the extent and, and the far-reaching consequences in one hour um, of um, U.S. military bases. So Assis and I will have a part two of this show mm -hmm. um, where we will continue to talk about um, the, the, the consequences and the causes, but also um, to expand the conversation to talk about um, the militarization of the police. Um, so, um, Assis, what did you think about some of the resistance movements? And, um, and you are from Honduras. Has there been any resistance or what has been the resistance in Honduras, um, against U.S. military bases? Yes. Uh, I would say that, uh, there is a, uh, important, uh, resistance movement, uh, uh, against uh, military bases and specific against uh, uh, Soto Cano, mm -hmm. uh, and is is more connected with the region. Uh, so in the last decade, Copin, uh, which is an indigenous uh, organization, uh, 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 has been organizing a, a, a national rally. Uh, against Soto Cano, against the U.S. Uh, military base, and it's pretty much connected with, uh, uh, I would say, with the uh, global uh, resistance against uh, uh, military bases around the world. And um, just as a preview of the sort of militarization of the police, um, how militarized is the police in Honduras, and how how has that been um, used against like people who resist? Yeah, I think that uh, this is very important because uh, militarization is is uh, is beyond the idea of having uh, military bases, and we can see how is is playing in in f within the police institution, and in, ca in case of Honduras, is highly militarized. Uh, in fact, there is a uh, uh, in the last. Uh, years after the coup d'etat, there is a, pr a push uh, from the government to almost uh, eliminate the police and, uh, and have, instead of police, uh, police have um, militaries in the street. Uh, so uh, in the last four years, uh, uh, there is uh, a new police that the government, the Honduran government called uh, military police. Oh. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, with the last couple minutes left, um, I just want to thank uh, David Vine for speaking with Assis and I. Um, and 
if you didn't catch the rest of the show, um, this show will be um, put up on SoundCloud and on Facebook um, and also on iTunes Radio. And you can find um, links to some of the materials we used for research and photos, etc. And we're also on Instagram. Um, next week, uh, Nick Awad and uh, Marisa Nielsen will be talking about um, caring for our children um, and also about um, foster care. And um, for the last minute, we're going to go out with um, a song by R.E.M. called The Flowers of Guatemala. Something